and thank you for listening to Beyond the Bar. I'm your host, Margaret Mullen. I am very excited for this episode, as it will be the first of many with this guest. Today, we are just starting off by getting to know her. She is my mentor, friend, and confidant. She means the world to me. The amazing Zipporah Cars. Zipporah is a former soloist ballerina with the New York City Ballet, where she performed for 16 years on stage and in televised performances. She now serves as a teacher and repetiteur for the Balanchine Trust, rehearsing and staging Balanchine's choreography for a host of national and international dance companies. She is also a diabetes spokesperson and educator who regularly addresses major diabetes conferences and organizations worldwide. Zipporah's memoir, The Sugarless Plum, has inspired people all over the world to live happy and healthy lives. She also authored a children's book, Ballerina Dreams, The story teaches children with and without diabetes that they should not give up on their dreams no matter what the challenges they face. She is currently guest faculty at the prestigious Colburn Academy in Los Angeles, California, as well as an artist-in-residence at the University of Southern California, Gloria Kaufman School of Dance. Zipporah hopes to continue to inspire people to live healthy, active lives through her work as an author, teacher, and motivational speaker. I'm thrilled to have her on the show today, and for many more episodes to come, we always have a lot to talk about. Welcome, Zipporah Cars. Hello, Zipporah. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I'm just such a huge fan in so many ways and honored to have you here. And well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. This is going to be one of probably a few episodes with you, but I have had the pleasure of getting to know you so well over the last couple of years and you've helped me as a mentor so much. So I'm excited to be able to share more about your story because it's really inspiring. Yeah, we just kind of want to get into everything to start off. So I wanted to go from the beginning because you had quite an interesting journey through what ended up being a very successful career into New York City Ballet, um, but it wasn't a very even path. You even wrote a book about it called The Sugarless Plum, which I highly recommend everyone reads. It's a fantastic book. So one of my favorite books. Thank you. Incredibly well written. Um, And so I wanted to just start off with, you know, going back to your childhood, what got you into dance? How did your journey with ballet begin? Well, I actually had uh, I come from a, a, a history of dancers. My grandmother uh, was in vaudeville. She had a solo act uh, as a, from a very young age. And my mother actually went to Juilliard. She was a modern dance major, Jose Limon. But because my grandmother had been a professional and so successful, she never gave her daughters formal training. And so they, she just kind of, once she had a family, she put them in an act. And they would go to hospitals and they'd perform for you know, soldiers that had come home. And so it was just a performing thing, but my mother never had the formal training. So when she was at Juilliard, she was very shy and insecure about her dancing. And she felt that because she hadn't had formal training, she lacked the competitive edge to give her the confidence to be successful at it. And so she ended up becoming a physical therapist, uh, you know, finding her calling in another way, actually inspired by the story of Tannicle Leclerc. She read about Tanny being stricken with polio in the newspaper. And my mother got inspired to go into physical therapy. I'm actually going to cry right now because how comes full circle. But anyhow, so basically my mother decided that 
if she, when she had kids, if her children showed any promise, she was going to make sure that they had formal training because she didn't want them to lack the confidence that she felt. And so when my sisters and I got old enough, my mother actually looked for a studio close by and found an amazing teacher and asked us if we wanted to dance. And my older sister said yes. So, of course, I naturally said yes. And that's how it started, that we started taking ballet. And um, I actually, and you interrupt me when you want to, because I... <laughs> no, you keep going. <laughs> I'll keep going. I actually was extremely bored at the beginning. I, as a child, I was very outspoken. I was very into animal rights. I was very into feminism. <laughs> and I really saw myself almost doing something politically because I felt so strong about injustice and what I didn't like about the world. And I didn't grow up in Los Angeles, especially in the early 70s. There wasn't much happening with live performances and ballet in particular. So I never really saw a ballet performance. I did see a performance on the television and I just couldn't understand first why they wanted to have their faces white. It, it might, I'm trying to remember what it must have been. It must have been like the Willies or something in Giselle. I remember they were acting and they were all emoting. And I just was like, why are you trying to be somebody that you're not? And why are you, why are your faces white? And why are you standing on the tips of your toes? And the feminist part of me came out and I just thought, ugh, and I changed the channel. So that was my first impression of ballet. But, but when, when I went, when I decided that I would take the ballet class as my older sister was going to do, um, and I, the, fir the first class that I took was very technical and I was actually pretty bored. And I was so bored that after the second year of ballet, I asked my mother, if I could quit. And she said, well, I paid for the year. So you have to finish the year and then you, and then you can quit. So I was going to quit after my second year of ballet. And after the second year of ballet, you move to the bigger studio. And that's when you got this teacher who was known as this huge inspirational teacher. Her name is Sheila Razan and she's in her nineties and she's still teaching to this day. And Sheila's story is that Sheila's dream was to dance for the great George Balanchine. But Sheila had feet like a spatula and she couldn't get up on point. So she poured all of her love and passion into teaching. Um, she actually was offered a contract with the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo as a character dancer. But hmm. to Sheila, you know, it was all about ballet. So she decided just to become a teacher. And she was so passionate that my mother was always late. Hence why I, I hate being late to this day. I had two chronically late parents and it, it was really hard as a child. But the good part of it in ballet was that after ballet, I would go and I would watch the older dancers in the class with Sheila. And I would just watch the way they were moving and the inspiration and the sweat. And there was just something happening in that studio that was not happening in my studio. And so I decided that I was going to stick it out. And I was going to see what happened if I took the third year of ballet and I got to take from Sheila. So thankfully I stayed and taking from Sheila changed my life. And I didn't know it at the time, of course, but, um, Sheila used to send students to Balanchine would bring the New York city ballet to Los Angeles and they would perform. I think they performed a midsummer night's dream and Sheila sent students. And from one year to the next, there was so much improvement that 
Janet Reed, the ballet mistress at the time, noticed the kids and said to Balanchine, I think you should go check out that teacher. Because Balanchine was very big into educating teachers across the U.S. You know, his big saying was, but first to school. And he wanted to educate schools in his style. And so he personally, personally went to Sheila's school, personally watched her teach, personally gave her a private lesson and how to hold the hands, what to do, and developed a relationship with her where he invited her to come to New York every year. And she would take a trip every year to New York, watch him teach and developed a relationship with the teachers of the school of American Ballet, in particular, Stanley Williams. She fell in love with his teaching style. So here I come in the in the 70s, and I have no idea that this style that I'm learning has anything to do with a one particular man. All I know is that it had nothing to do with what I'd seen on the television. It was nothing about acting or trying to be something that I wasn't. It was the opposite. It was pure energy. It was it was becoming more of who I was. And it just spoke to me. And then for any of us who know, as you train your body and your body becomes that vehicle, then something happens to you and you lose a sense of time. And even in the studio, I hadn't really even performed yet. And then we would have a year end recital. And then of course the magic happens there, but just in that studio, something was happening to me and here I'll, and then I'll let you ask a question, but the will say about this, is that so, so my parents were divorced and my mother's boyfriend moved in with us. And he and I, um, you know, he was very supportive of me. He was supportive of me um, academically and supportive of me with my dancing, but he had a temper and I had a temper and I didn't like him telling me what to do. And I let him know it. And he, it became physically abusive. Home life was not easy for me. And so Sheila had a policy where you could take any class you wanted if it was underneath your level. So for free, for free, you didn't have to pay for it. And we didn't have much money. So basically, I didn't really want to go home because he was at home all the time. And my mom was working full time. So I would take the bus from school right to the ballet class. I do my homework at lunchtime. And I just threw myself into ballet. And what I like to say on reflection of my past is I wasn't running away from my life. I was finding my life in the ballet studio. I liked who I was. I liked who I was becoming. I was finding who I was in the studio. Okay, you can ask a question now. Well, it's it's so funny. When, um, when you and I first met a couple of years ago, I remember the first time we got together, we had a sit down I think we talked for like yeah, what three or four hours or something <laughs> crazy yeah at Whole Foods um and it was because of all of that I I think um meeting you was the first time I really met someone that I could relate to in in that way either very similar situation with um finances especially you know not growing up with very much I, I was a work scholarship kid and um and also that kind of father-daughter relationship for you it was with you know your mom's boyfriend and for, for me it was with, with, with my actual father. And, and that is, was definitely one of the things that made me fall in love with ballet. It was like, that was my emotional escape. It really was like, I, you know, the, the joy of physical mastery, but also having a way to express something that you can't quite find words for. And just young, we can't articulate what's going on, nor should we have to, but we can take all of that emotion and we can channel it into our bodies. And for me, 
I, I actually felt I had moments where I felt I was like, oh, this is what love feels like. This is what love, not a love of a person, but love as an energy. And I was just, you know, I was taken with it. I, yeah, I, I literally fell in love. I feel like I fell in love. Yeah, it, it really completes part, a part of you that you need completed in a way. Um, yeah, it, I, yeah, just very, very similar. And I, I think too, just, I think that was also one of the reasons I was the same way, like kid obsessed. I was always at the studio. Any chance I could possibly be, I was there. It was hard for my mom to get me to go home because I just, that was what I wanted my world to be. I just wanted to be there, which is, yeah. When you're trying to escape other things, then when you find something so rewarding in that sense, it just really becomes your everything as a little, as a kid. Absolutely. But see, I didn't know that you could do it as a profession. I don't know what it was like for you. Did you know that there was a career for you? Luckily, I did. I um, be, Mostly because my mom used to volunteer with Valley, Arizona when they would come down from Tucson. So I, I was lucky in that sense where um, she would take me to see shows, but also I got to spend time um, behind the scenes, like watching the dancers and watching that this was like a whole a whole world, a whole process, watching the warm-ups, watching the rehearsals and all that stuff. It was like, oh, wow, this is... I can do this all the time, then I definitely want to do this all of the time, forever. That was, <laughs> started that for me. Um, so you made it this far, you know, you're, you have this amazing connection with this teacher that had a connection with George Balanchine and how, how, how wonderful to think about that. Just, I mean, taking a moment to pause on that thought. But I still didn't know that. I just wanted to dance for her at the year-end recital at Reseda High School. <laughs> I didn't know that there was anything beyond Yeah, that. a bigger picture, but yeah. But I, I just want her to pick me for a, a nice role, get to work on it, and perform. That was my goal. Yeah. <laughs> That's so amazing. So how long did you stay in that environment, that kind of smaller environment? Well, well what happened then is, of course, summer programs come around. And so Sheila was... Um, very adamant that I start going away for the summers as did my older sister. And by then my younger sister. So I'm, I'm the middle girl. There's a brother in there also a, a yellow between my younger sister and I. So the three of us actually went to actually maybe just the two of us. The first time when I was 12, I went to San Francisco ballet school. That's when uh, Lou Christensen was still directing the San Francisco ballet in 1978. I'm aging myself. Well, as a 12 year old <laughs> and and I, and I, you know, I think it was the first time I had a sense that the teachers kind of paid attention to me. I thought it was because I just worked so hard that people were paying attention to me. I didn't really have a sense I had any talent. But the next year, I was accepted to the School of American Ballet in New York. Now, of course, that had been Sheila's dream. So Sheila, of course, is like, Zipporah is going to New York. And I said, well, I'm going to go. My older sister's name is Michelle. And she was going back to San Francisco. I said, no, I really want to go back to San Francisco with Michelle. And my Sheila had a conference with my mother and I and said, it's time to separate the girls and Zipporah needs to go to New York. And I was just like, really? Okay. So I went to New York reluctantly with some other, other students from my school. My sister went a different direction. It was okay. Um, it was fine. I loved the city. It was exciting. But it was very intimidating. I mean, I was not one of these kids who dreamt about being a ballerina. And all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by all the little girls who are dreaming about ballerinas and the mothers who are obsessed with their kids getting into the New York City Ballet. And I think the harder thing for me was um, 
I, I always like to say I was, I'm more cult than thoroughbred. I was not a very athletic dancer. I had a lot of enthusiasm, like a lot of enthusiasm. And I, and I had the aesthetic, I had the body, but I was, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I had trouble standing on one leg in Adagio, trouble with my double pirouettes. I didn't jump very high. So in San Francisco, they placed us in, in lines. In New York, you just ran to the front, and whoever got there was in front for the whole time. And I didn't have that kind of confidence. So I just stayed in the back. You know, the teachers never learned my name. So I kind of went home. I was happy for my New York experience, but I'm like going back to San Francisco next year. So the next year was the ages for me between 14 and 15. And that's when things got really bad at home. And that's when he really became physically abusive with me more than he had been. And um, that's when I was taking three and four classes a day at Sheila's studio. And it was, and then I grew five inches that year. So that year I really changed and I really um, became a much stronger dancer. So by the time the next year came around and the auditions happened and I got full scholarships to both San Francisco and New York and I tell Sheila, I'm going back to, to San Francisco. She says, not having it. So Basically, she just said, I've never known anything so much in my entire life. Zipporah has to dance for George Balanchine. And of course, I still have not seen a live performance. I have not seen a live performance. So I'm just thinking, boy, she really wants this, doesn't she? <laughs> you know. So I reluctantly went back to New York and I was I was different. I was a, I looked different. I My dancing was different. And they learned my name. And by the end of the summer, uh, they asked me to stay for the winter. So Balanchine's still alive. This is 1980. And he's still alive. He didn't pass away till 83. And so the end of the summer, they asked me to stay for the winter. And I, you know, I'm still thinking I'm going to college. I'm going to be a, you know, I don't know, at that point, a, a, a veterinarian. I don't know what I wanted to be yet. You know, a teacher. I, I always actually wanted to be a teacher. I just didn't know of what yet. Anyhow, so I come home. I didn't even tell my mom because I thought we don't have money for anything like that. But I wanted Sheila to be proud of me. So, you know, kind of hung back behind everybody else, you know, doing the, during the reverence and saying, you know, thank you to Sheila. And so she pulls me aside afterwards and she says, you know, how, how was it this year? And I said, oh, I think they like me better. And she's like, oh, why? And I was like, well, they asked me to stay for the winter. And oh, man, <laughs> she grabs me by the hand. I wrote about this in the book. She grabs me by the hand and she's she's pulling me to where my mother was. Well, my mom probably wasn't there because she was always late, but pulling me to where my mom should be picking me up, screaming, you're going, you're going. And I'm I'm thinking, you know, first of all, it's August. It's August. OK, the school year starts after Labor Day in September. And I was just thinking, is she crazy? Like, I'm supposed to be in New York, I'm 15 years old, you know? So basically, I was secretly hoping somebody was going to say, the core is only 15, she can't go to New York. But because my grandmother had been a dancer and was on stage in Vaudeville at 16, and because my mother had been a dancer at Juilliard, you know, everybody was like, do it. You know, you should do it if you want it. And I was just like, wrong answer. Like, you know, my, my, my dad was not happy about it, but my parents were divorced and, and, uh, he didn't really have the say and, you know, money was an issue. And then I got awarded a scholarship. So one, nothing stopped it. Nothing stopped it from happening. And in a way 
as scared as I was, I think I was scared because I didn't know what was what I was going to because I'd never I still hadn't seen a ballet. I'd still not seen a live performance. I still had no concept that this is something you do for your life. I didn't know what was ahead of me. I didn't still hadn't wrapped my head around the concept. You can be a ballerina for a career for a life. And yet I was unhappy at home and I wanted out of the house. So when I look back on it, I actually think if I had been happy at home, I think I would have stayed at home. The fact that I wasn't happy at home pushed me because I was I was a pretty scared kid. I mean, I, I was I was outspoken and I was tough. But, you know, underneath the skin was pretty, you know, it, it was pretty thin. So I was scared. So the next day, within a month, within a month, I'm, you know, on an airplane to New York. And it was, it was very scary. It was very scary the first couple weeks. And the winter was very different than the summer. And those girls were, you know, there was, there was bullying and there was, it was intimidating. Um, and, and yet, and yet there, a couple things happened. The first thing that happened, um, I, I thought this great George Balanchine was going to be a very intimidated man. In fact, when I first got to SAB and Lincoln Kirstein was walking the halls. So Lincoln was very tall. So Lincoln Kirstein is the one who, the man who brought Balanchine to America. And Lincoln, huge, I say he's like 6'4", and big man, and he had this frown on his face, and he walked the halls, and I was like, ooh, George Balanchine is so scary. You know? And then somebody's like, no, that's Lincoln Kirstein. I was like, that's not Balanchine. I couldn't imagine that. what's Balanchine going to look like. So the first time I saw him, I was walking down the hall to my studio, getting ready for class, and just me walking down the hall. I'm 15 years old, and this grandpa-like sweet man is walking towards me with a little bow tie around his neck, you know, this Western-type bow tie. And he walks by me, and he just bows his head to me, acknowledges my presence, just bows, and he walks on. And I, and I looked after him. I was like, oh, was that was that Balanchine? And did he just bow to me? Like, did he just bow his head? Like, why me? I'm like the nobody. And, and all I can say is that that, that was the respect. That was the respect that he gave everyone, everyone. He never seen me dance. I mean, yes, it's going to be another thing when you're dancing for him and we're all wanting him to, to love us, but he made you feel, first of all, he honored you. He respected you. Because he knew we were all there because we loved the art. We loved it. And we were there because he, he created this kingdom for us to flourish. And he was acknowledging, you are here. And I'm happy you're here. And it was, I'll never forget that moment. So that was the first thing that happened that turned around for me, me being there. And the second thing was that my, my best friend and I, we were in a level called C1. And we were called into the office and told that we were being moved up into the level called C2, which was the, one of the highest levels. And um, we were the youngest ones in the class. And that's the class that Mr. B picked from. And I remember being so intimidated and so scared and so upset that they moved me up because I was finally feeling comfortable there and feeling like I was finding some friends. And then they put me in this class that people are staring at me like, what is she doing here? This little pipsqueak. And, and I felt like a little goody two shoes, you know, what I mean? cause I was so like, I was so into it and, you know, it was kind of party girls and you had your different cliques, but I remember calling my sister and my mom were calling me every night cause I was so homesick. And I remember Romy 
I, I wait till my mom got off the phone because I didn't want her to worry about me. But I, you know, Romy's like, are you okay? And I was like, I really want to come home. And she's like, what happened? I'm like, something awful happened today. She's like, what? I'm like, they put me in this class called C2. She's like, oh no. And we, <laughs> it was actually this incredible honor and this incredible thing. Um, and yet it was just so scary to me. It was all scary and hard. And then what happened was I saw the New York City Ballet. And I started going to the company and I started seeing Balanchine's ballets and I started seeing his dancers and his dancers, because I was in C2, because I was in one of the highest levels, they would take class with us. Peter Martins was taking class with us. Suzanne Farrell was teaching me once a week. I mean, all of a sudden my life went from where I have no idea what I'm getting myself into to I can't believe that something this magical exists in the universe and nobody told me I just I, I it was and I, and I heard the Beatles at the first time for the first time during that time I was like wait a minute how did I not know this like how did I not know this kind of art existed and then the fact that I was there I really I, I almost I was almost breathless with it like the night before the next day I, I couldn't sleep because I'd be so excited for the next day that that's that's how um touched I was that I was there and that I was part of this history. You know, then we'd have, well, Stanley Williams was such a, a magnificent teacher that he would attract the great dancers. And then there was Nuriev and there was Borishnikov and there was Peter Martins and they were all in class together. And Helgi Thomason was in class and Eve Anderson was in class and they were all there. They were all there. And we'd be standing like little groupies, you know, at the doorway, just like trying to peek up and watching them like egg each other on with their turns. And, it was just, it was very, very, you know, just being a spectator there was exciting. You know, I, I, and then when I saw the ballets and I, I just, I fell in love. I found that watching his ballets was bringing me just as much pleasure as dancing them, you know, as dancing myself. And I gained such great inspiration just from that time. This is all before he passed away. It was all alive with his brilliance and his energy and I feel like now looking back on it because I'll jump to um I'll jump to he picked me for the company and then he passed away so I'm the last group chosen by him but I didn't he he died after he he basically went in the hospital after we were told there were three of us that were told he wanted us next for the company and then and then he died and then we were told nobody would get in for a year and we should take other offers if we got them because they didn't because they couldn't assure us that the new director was going to pick us. And so there was a year of nothing happening. And um, when I look back now as a teacher, the grief that we all felt at that time with his death, I, I didn't feel that I could compare my grief to those who knew him intimately and had worked with him. And yet the grief of never having a life with him being touched by it three years, getting to work with him. And, you know, during the workshops, he would come and rehearse us and we got to work for him. Um, the grief that I would never be molded by him was overwhelming, overwhelming. Actually, Peter Bull and I went to visit him in the hospital. Um, we went together because we, we, were, we were close at SAD. And I said to Peter, I said, we'll never forgive ourselves if we don't take this opportunity to go to go to go say hello to him. And so I remember we were really scared 
And we went to the hospital and we almost walked out going, oh, we have no right. We're just school kids. And then Karin von Eraldegen, who was always there and who was his 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 um, his closest person, she saw us leaving. She said, come back, come back. He's having a good day. And she called us in and he was in a regular hospital bed. And we, he asked us to pull up chairs and he just talked to us. And Peter remembers it a little differently than I do. But basically. Basically, he just he talked to us and it was it was very touching and he just loved that we were school kids and we were, you know, wanted to know about how we were doing and what we were doing, what we were working on and everything. And it was it was very beautiful in the years to come in my career, because that was it with Mr. B with just my first three years there. And then he was gone. Um, And then so the rest of my career, the rest of my 20 year career was dancing for other people. And, um, you know, you feel like you want to prove yourself. You want you want to show them what they, what you have is special. You feel that pressure, like I'm gonna I'm gonna show you I can do this, and that becomes the the norm. You know, with balancing, with balancing, you first of all the first feeling was I don't have to prove anything. He sees it all, whether I've I've exposed it or not. He sees it. He can see deep inside my soul. But the other thing is the inability to contain your love and your enthusiasm because you feel this person that wants it, that wants all of it. There's no conditions. If you felt it's okay, you meant you were going for it, but, but being in the presence of him, and I know other people talk about this, but I will tell you, this is how I felt. I just wanted to be a thousand percent of who I was. And I just, it's this, it's this overwhelming feeling of giving and, and I can tell you because I didn't have that for other people. And I'll say Jerome Robbins in particular was like, oh, my God, I have to prove to him. I can prove why he's going to love me, you know, is more of like up me against him. And same with Peter Martins, you know, up, up me up against, you know, the, the judgment, the show me what you can do. You know, with Mr. B, it was just like, let me have it. And it's just like, I can't help it. <laughs> You know, I just had to work on staying grounded, you know, just like breathe, stay grounded because the energy was kind of bigger than what I was like. It was literally like being plugged into an electrical socket. And I was just like, you're just electrified like when you're on stage. But it's just like you're like that in the classroom, like you just can't contain a bigger energy. And 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 I and, you know, so what I where I was going with it was the grief of not having that, you know, stayed with me for my career. But as a teacher now. The fact that I had that is where I go when I teach. It's almost like the years of having to prove myself and my own obstacles, which we'll obviously get into. Um, that was part of my personal story and my personal struggle. But when I teach, and, and of course that informs you know the dancer I became and the person I became and how I teach because I can articulate because I had to kind of reteach my body through my illness. So it, you know that of course informed me. But the magic of dance and the magic and the love that we all have a right to, whether you become a professional or not, and no matter what company you're in, it's just part of the basic human soul that we all deserve to feel inspired by our own energy and by something higher than us. And we do it through this form of dance. Um, I got to feel that in his presence. And so I like to give to to other people as best I can. I'm not a genius, but you know what I mean? Because I know, I know what that is. So, so I feel, I feel grateful is what I'm trying to say. I'm grateful that I, that I touched the end of his life 
Whereas during that time, it was, oh my God, what horrible timing I had. I got here just at the end and then we lost him. And now I look back and I'm like, thank God. Thank God I got the tail end of his life. Your experience with him was not only transformative for your life as a teacher and generally, but how incredible to have been touched by him as, like you said, coming in, having no clue about the field. I, I can't even imagine. It's, it's, you, the ballet world is so, so niche in so many ways. <laughs> and to the idea of being thrown deeply into that with people that have been obsessed with that their entire lives when you are, it's completely foreign to you. I can't even imagine <laughs> what that was like. So it, it takes someone like him to. Yeah, that's right. And I think it served me when I got sick because I think since I, I had one foot out the door, I was like, I have to say, even with Balanchine, you know, we were all taken with Balanchine and the energy and the magic that he created. I was very aware of the dysfunction as well. Balanchine didn't want his dancers to have relationships outside of the company. I mean, maybe inside the company is okay, but he didn't want them having boyfriends. He didn't want them doing anything that would take them away from dance. He didn't want them going to school. He didn't want them... Um, having kids. And I, you know, me being the, the feminist that I was, I just thought, really, you know, that's, that's, that's not right. And yet I still got taken up in it. You know, I, I went in thinking I'm not going to get weird about this. And I did, I did because, because it was that powerful. But when I, so, so basically jumping to my story, if that's okay, yeah, so I got in, so I was taken into the company. Peter Martins and Jerome Robbins were the co-directors. And I was actually happy it was Peter. I knew Peter because um, Heather Watts is from my ballet school. Uh, Heather Watts trained with Sheila. So Peter had actually taught me um, in Los Angeles when I was like 12, and he liked me. And then when I came to New York, he had me learning the leads in his workshop ballets. So I knew he liked me. So I wasn't really worried that it was him. In fact, I was happy it was him. And of course, we all wanted Jerome Robbins to like us and admired him like crazy, even though he was extremely scary. And um, so I think getting into the company was stressful at that time because we were the only ones Peter had chosen. And Balanchine had a policy where he didn't fire anybody. When you couldn't do your dancing roles, you did character roles. And so nobody knew if Peter Martins was going to follow suit and nobody knew if he was going to keep them or not. So there was a big air of instability. Also, there was a lot of competition. You know, the, the people who had Peter came from the outside, but the people who had come from within and had been there many more years than Peter Martins were not happy. It was him as the director. So walking into company class was very um, scary. And um, and yet inspirational because Suzanne was still dancing. You know, Peter actually was still dancing. I mean, the performances were pretty amazing at that time because the emotions were so high and everybody was giving their entire soul and Balanchine was alive in the ballets. So Balanchine had this policy, as we know in the ballet world, where in America here, and this was started by Balanchine, you didn't have to pay your dues. You don't have to become a soloist or a principal to do solo roles. You could be in the court of ballet and do solo roles. Balanchine really started that policy where he came from Russia. You had to spend years and years doing leading roles. 
So he liked to pluck people from the core to ballet, put them a lead, see how they do. If they do great, you keep giving them solos. If not, you put them back in the core. So Peter Martin's um, my second year in the company, he followed suit and he, he picked me for the sugar plum fairy and Peter bowl was my partner. So we had a week to learn it. Our names went up on casting and within a week we were out there doing sugar plum and cavalier and um, it went really well. And all the reviews said we were the next big stars and blah, 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 blah. It was very exciting. And the next year, Peter Martins was choreographing a new ballet and he picked Peter, Peter Bull and I to um, be a couple again. And there was eight, y- up, eight young up and coming corps de ballet members. Wendy Whalen was in it. Margaret Tracy was in it. Peter Bull and I, Jeff Edwards, uh, Ricky Martin and uh, Kelly, Kelly Cast. Now Kelly Bull was one of them. And uh, Carlo Merlo, who's no longer dancing. Um, well, none of us are dancing, but I don't think he's. <laughs> We're all well. And it was a very exciting time because, of course, to have the director choreograph on you is a, is a great honor and privilege. And Peter Martins was the new young director, and it was very exciting. And yet that's when I started to experience uh, strange symptoms in my body. And I really just thought I was burnt out. Our seasons, I just, like I said, I was more cult than thoroughbred. And I wasn't used to dancing 12 hours a day for three months at a time. And I was really struggling with it. And Which is is fair. (laughs) That's a very intense uh, schedule. And pressure of the premiere, you know, it was the end of a winter season, an end of a three-month season. I'm exhausted. And then the pressure of the premiere. And Wendy and Margaret were younger than me and clearly technically stronger than me. And I felt like my body was kind of falling apart. And, and Peter Martin would say things. What's wrong with you, Zip? What's wrong with you? And, and I just get so nervous. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And I wasn't sleeping at night and my body was falling apart. And I was just, it was really hard. It was a hard time. I felt like it was my third year in the company. I was already a has-been. Like I was already falling short and the younger talent was, you know, taking over. And so I had a lot of pressure on myself. I was having a lot of anxiety about it. But I still didn't think anything was wrong. You know, of course, I was dizzy. I was spaced out in my head. I was thirsty all the time. I was peeing all the time. I was hungry all the time. But I just thought it was normal, tired, tired. Um, but what got me to the doctor was I, I'm very sloped shoulders. And because of all the ballets, we were always putting somebody else's costume on, new costumes, or uh, different costumes, I should say. And one of the costumes was really just rubbed me underneath the arms. And I developed these boils. I just boils under my arms and I, cu- I, I couldn't lift my arm. So it was my panic that the premiere was coming up and I, cu- I couldn't lift my, it just ripped. It, it was, it was huge. I was putting pancake on it every night. It was so disgusting. I was so embarrassed. It was just awful. That's why I went to the doctor was because I was, I was pretty horrified by the look of it, but I also couldn't lift my arms and I, it was affecting my performance. So I went to the doctor and that's when, um, I got the diagnosis that I, um, that I have diabetes. Do you want to ask a question now or you want to? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, God, I, I, so you're just, like I said, I could just listen to you all day. Um, no, I, I cannot even imagine. I'm, I'm sure too coming in at that time when you start feeling extreme symptoms. And I think this happens to young dancers all the time. There's just so much psychological pressure that you don't even realize until, after the fact, a lot of the time, like when I look at that, when I look back on how 
I felt <laughs> when I was younger, when I first joined the company, that I never even realized. Like, it's it's kind of shocking because you, and you coming in at a time of really um, kind of some turmoil, essentially. I mean, a huge, huge shift and trauma across the boards for everyone and change and uncertainty and then being thrust into it's exciting to get big roles when you're young but at the same time it's as you said it's so much pressure and so it's it's fair to I think on your end to have assumed that oh like this is getting to me all this pressure that's right and 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 I felt I was embarrassed I was embarrassed by my lack of being able to just let it roll off and I'm cool with it you know I mean I was embarrassed that I'd be up all night freaking out not sleeping so I didn't say, I didn't tell anybody because I didn't want to be seen as like, really, what's wrong with you? Um, so I didn't talk about it. And these are the days before I, I was always health conscious, but of course not how I am now. And I really wasn't, I'm sure I was going to the health food store trying, or I'm sure we didn't have the internet. It's not like I could Google, what do I do for sleep? Um, I remember the doctors putting me on something and it just nothing ever worked. Cause that wasn't my problem. It wasn't a you know, whatever, whatever. This is bef- this is long before Ambien. They put me on something called Halcyon, which now they say is a dangerous sleeping pill. But none of them work. And I, and and I'm just not a person to do drug, you know, regular pharmaceutical drugs. Anyhow, none of them ever work. They just make you drowsy and side effects. And I remember in the first days of melatonin, I would like overdo it. I'm like, I was completely drugged. But I hadn't figured any of it out. I didn't have the tools to talk about it. It was before anything that. Um, really kind of we're, we're with the internet the consciousness of health has really kind of it's it's available to us in those days I felt a lot of shame I felt a lot of shame that I was having a problem that it didn't seem like anybody else was yeah you know what I mean well, yeah oh yeah and I think that's something that as dancers um we do a lot anyway is um there is there is a lot of pressure to be physically able to perform all the time. And there is a lot of comparison, I think, that happens from above. Of, And as we, we've talked about this before, that dancers are disposable. So it kind of gets in your brain that you can't miss well, well, because yeah, of these know, things. If you can't do it, somebody else is right there ready to come in and take your spot. And that's not against it. I mean, we're, we're all friends. It's just a fact. It's just a fact of, of what it is. And so I... When I was diagnosed, well, the first thing that happened, this is a longer, it's all a long story, but um, I was misdiagnosed because in the 80s, they, and they now call it the dark ages of diabetes. I'm very glad I didn't know that at the time because, you know, we put, we put doctors in the God role and they tell us to do something and you do it. Little yeah. did I know they're telling me to do things that could have, like, I could have died, but I just followed their directions when they say to do something. Um, but the... I was not properly diagnosed because I was 21 and in the eighties, in the eighties, it was not common for somebody in their twenties to have insulin dependent diabetes. If you were in your twenties, you most likely had adult onset diabetes, which is a different disease. It's not autoimmune type one insulin dependent is autoimmune. Adult onset is faulty lifestyle, inactivity and overweight. So they thought I was that one. So Which the, is interesting looking at you as a young ballerina. Like, the more I read about it, I was like, this makes no sense to me, but I'll take it because this one you can reverse if you just lose weight and you exercise. So I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'll figure it out another day. 
but I'm going to take it. I'm going to take the diagnosis that I can reverse rather than the one that you are in insulin for the rest of your life. So I'm like, I'm taking the type two, don't know how I'm going to lose weight, don't know how I'm going to exercise more, but we'll figure it out. I knew that I could handle my stress better. So I, I went out on this. I went to stay with my grandmother, the dancer who was health food nut and into health before it, health food nut had a name. And we basically devised a diet, which was a low carb diet before low carb diets were had a name. And because we realized that 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 helped me, my blood sugars come down was when I didn't eat any carbohydrates. But I also went to an herbalist, uh, uh, like a she was like a medicine woman, shamanic type stuff. And she gave me a lot of herbs to help my my systems work better. I went, I stopped coffee because I was not a coffee drinker as a kid. And all of a sudden, getting through company days, I mean, I was just like living off of coffee. So I just felt like I just had to stop everything I'd been doing, reset, and start to nurture my body. And, you know, lo and behold, it worked. And I went back to New York. I, that was, I could come home for six weeks. And then I went back to New York. And um, I remember the first day of company class, Peter Martins was teaching. And he came up to me during tondus. And he took me by the hand. And he said, are you all better now? And I turned, I looked at him, and I just shook my head yes. And um, and that was it. That was it. It was over. And, um, you know, a part of me wished wished that he had been more interested in what I was dealing with. But a re realistic part of me knew that, no, 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 no. Don't, you don't want him to know because he'll never let you dance. If he knows what you're actually dealing with, he's not going to give you leading roles. He's not going to put you out there. He'd say he would, but he wouldn't do it. You yeah. know, you would be judged. You yeah, would, you'd, you'd, you'd end up feeling like he's being you as a liability. That's right. So for me, for me, I knew that if I wanted to continue with the New York City Ballet, I had to prove, I did have to prove my reliability, my responsibility, um, that I was strong enough, and that I was going to be the same dancer that I was before my diagnosis. Otherwise, you know, it's not their fault. This is not a special, I'm not, I don't want to be a specialty case. There was no room for a specialty case in the New York City Ballet. So I felt like, you know, if you can't do it, either find a company that performs less or find another career. So, um, the, that was when I still thought I had type two diabetes. So it was, it was good. I was able to think that way because I was like, I got this. I know how to eat. I know what to do. It's all working. It all worked. You know what I mean? Stay away from carbohydrates, do this, do that. Everything was working. Cut to two years later and we went to Japan. We had a trip to Japan. I could not adjust to the time zone. I could not sleep. I think in two weeks, I slept two hours. My body could not adjust. And by the time I came home from that trip, because I was checking my blood sugars every day with a monitor, I couldn't get my blood sugars to come down. No matter what I did of what I knew worked in my routine, staying away from carbs, doing this herb, doing that, doing this, nothing worked. And my blood sugars just skyrocketed. And I thought, you know, oh, I have to go to the doctor. I have to, I have to get, by that point, I didn't even have a doctor. I only had a doctor in LA. So I found a new doctor and he said, you've been my, misdiagnosed. You have type one diabetes. So two years into my diagnosis, I'm told that there's something called the honeymoon phase where for a period up to two years in a type one diabetic, the disease can appear to go into remission and you think you don't have it anymore severely. 
And after two years, and they don't know why, and for me, it was the not sleeping brought it on, um, it, it's revealed. And so two years into my diagnosis, I am put on insulin. So the company is seeing me in a certain way. Peter Martins has given me leading roles. Everything's hunky-dory. And all of a sudden, I have to take shots of insulin. So that, that was when my world came crashing down. That being on insulin, and that it was so daunting to think, how am I going to exercise all day and perform every night and take shots of insulin? Because what happens is, is that when you take a shot of insulin, exercise will make that shot work more efficiently, more effectively. But you can't tell how much better that shot will work. My, my shot could work 10 times as much or one time as much or not at all. You just never know. It just, the body, it, you know, we can't mimic the body. So the danger there is that when you have extra circulating insulin, that's where you hear about the diabetics shaking or foaming at the mouth or passing out is when they have too much insulin in their system and you, you can actually die. So here was the problem for me. And this is what took me so many years to figure out is that in order for me to feel my extremities, feel my fingers, to feel my toes, to focus, to, to dance with every part of my body, to be the dancer that I knew I could be, to fulfill my potential, I had to have normal blood sugar levels. So I had to take my shots. If my sugars were a little bit high, I was spaced out. I'd be falling off point. Peter Martins would be like, what's wrong with you? And so I was all freaked out. I was totally freaked out. Oh my God, I'm falling off point. But I was still in that place of trying to prove myself. And so I was freaked out about having anything but a normal blood sugar level. But as I learned, as I learned many times, yeah, that's not worth killing yourself. Like what would have happened if I passed out on stage and then they had to take me to the hospital? So that, I never passed out on stage, but I came close and I had some very scary incidences that I, I scared myself. And so what I would say my most difficult part of my journey as a diabetic performing was not the taking the shots and learning what to do. It was my perfectionism, my psyche, my personality that if I couldn't be my best, if I couldn't feel the love that I felt on stage, I didn't want to do it. It wasn't worth it. Having to sit in the face of um, not being my best and becoming just a corps de ballet dancer, standing on the side, watching everybody else do what I used to do um, was really painful, it was really hard and really painful. So what, so what I would say, what I would say, what happened for me is that I convinced myself, this is probably like, um, how many years into it? Because I was, oh, I was misdiagnosed another time and I, we won't go into that. That's in the book. But so, so I'd say like four or five years into my diagnosis, I was like, I can't do this. I got to quit. This is just not a realistic lifestyle for a person with diabetes who's on insulin. And so I decided I was going to go to Peter Martins and tell him, you know, thank you very much. I've had such a great experience in this world, but I just have to find a more realistic lifestyle. 
And every day I was going to go to his office. This is the day. And then every day my feet just ended up in the, in the, in the rehearsal room. And it was like, just one more ballet. You just have to do this ballet and just have to do that ballet. I'm looking at the schedule. Like I just have to dance that one more time. I just couldn't let go of it. And that actually really bothered me. I'm like, what, you know, lots of people have to let go of it. Lots of people through injury or through weight issues or life, life happens. Um, you know, you have to let go of things. And it really bothered me that I couldn't if I was playing with my life. So I didn't understand why I couldn't let go, even though it was so hard. And so I was doing a lot of journaling. And in my journaling, what I came to realize is that um, I was acting like I was exhausted of trying to deal with diabetes and try to figure it out. And the truth is what I just said earlier, I was more tired of feeling bad about myself that as much as I needed the stage, the stage also reflected what I used to be. The stage reflected who I used to be and wasn't anymore. And at age, what, 25, I felt, I remember, you know, in Cats, the song Memories. I remember, I remember, the, yes, that's how I feel. So she says, you know, one of the verses, I would sing if I had a voice, but I remember the time I knew what happiness was. I, that, that is genuinely how I felt. I felt like I remember a time I knew what happiness was and my life was over. And that was more painful for me to stand on that stage and have to sit in it of what I used to be. And when I realized that I was using diabetes as an excuse as to why I had to quit and the real reason was me feeling bad about myself and because the truth was, was I was still figuring it out. I was still learning how much insulin to take. And I was so freaked out of, oh, I have to keep my blood sugars higher than I want. So I'm going to be spaced out. I'm going to be falling off a point, And Peter Martin is going to say I look bad. And Jerome Robbins isn't going to cast me. Well, the truth was, was I hadn't really done it yet. I hadn't challenged myself to see, is it true? Are they going to take all the roles away from me? Are they not going to let me down? I was projecting what was going to happen because I couldn't stand falling off a point. I couldn't stand what I was becoming. So I was going to quit using diabetes as an excuse before I even tried it. So this is what I did. I made a pact with myself. And I said, if you try it and you give it a year or two years and, it's just, and it just is exactly what you thought it was going to be and it's just too painful, then you quit because you tried it. But you can't quit before you tried it. You're just projecting what's going to happen. So, um, so I made myself stay. It was not easy. It would have actually been easier to quit. It would have been easier to quit. So I made myself stay and I made myself stay in the face of it. And it was not easy. And I had a lot of low blood sugars and a lot of high blood sugars and, um, diabetics have more lactic acid in your body. So I had a lot of pain in my body. Um, and I had to figure out the right way to work, different teachers, different massaging, rolfing, all that stuff. And then, um, and I stayed and I stayed and I stayed and then I got promoted. And, and so I was promoted, um, I was promoted six years after my diagnosis. And then I stayed another seven as a soloist. And, and what I would say, and of course, then I was like, okay, I think you've done it. <laughs> I think you did. I think you have permission to go now. You, you know, and what I would say is that I never, I never felt like I achieved my original potential. I never felt like I had those moments that I had originally of just pure 
letting yourself go because I was always concerned. I, I had to think, am I low? Am I going to faint? Am I high? Is that why I can't feel my toes? Is this panic attack? Is this what? So I, I, I was always thinking. And because of that, I was judging myself and my performance a lot, but it's okay. But, but I was consistently dancing as a soloist with the New York City Ballet. And I'm sure some people would say they didn't notice that. Of course, for me, you know, we notice everything as dancers. Um, but but what I would say now, looking back on it, what I say is I didn't achieve my original potential, but I achieved my potential as a person with diabetes dancing with the New York City Ballet. And I feel like if nothing else, I learned um, I learned a work ethic is what I would say. I always had it. I always had the discipline. But I, but I learned how to maintain the discipline when times got tough. You know, it's one thing to maintain the discipline when things are working. It's another thing to maintain the discipline when they're not and you want to run and you want to get out. And, and, I, and I didn't. I didn't run. I mean, part of me thinks I, I don't know if I would do it again. Yeah, looking back, I'm like, yeah, you were really crazy. But, but, but again, it was a time, it was a time, you know, I was touched by balance, you know, I was touched by the greatness. I was touched by, I had the Suzanne Farrells. I had the support of the people who were with Balanchine and that, that fed me to such a degree that it, it, it helped me ride through a lot of the difficult times and, and it stayed with me. So, you know, looking back, I'm grateful I did it. Um, I, like I said, I don't know if I, if I have it in me to do it again, but I'm a different person now. And so basically when I left the stage, I wasn't going to have anything to do with dance. I felt really burnt out on dance. I felt like my perfectionism burned me out. And so I didn't want to be part of teaching. I don't want to be part of teaching. I don't want to be part of the dysfunction of the ballet world. And so one of my ballet mistress, Susan Hendel, who actually is the person who picked me for School of American Ballet, auditioned me, um, came to me and said, you know, Zippy, I think you'd be really good at staging the ballets. And I was just like, no, Susie, it isn't so. I was like, I don't think so, Susie. And she's like, no, I think so. So she set up a meeting with me at, um, with Barbara Horgan, Balanchine's secretary. And Barbara um, agreed to give me, uh, I, I set Concerto Baroque and Serenade as my first staging. And I, yeah, I went into very reluctantly, very much thinking I was going to, I was going, I had been going to school at the end of my career. I've been going to Fordham and I had a clear idea. I wanted to go into psychology. I wanted to do something to mentor people through the challenges of the things that I dealt with, but not within the profession. And, um, and what happened was I set, I set Serenade and I set Barocco and I just, <laughs> I was like, no, this can't be happening. I just felt it. I just felt, I just felt this intense honor and reverence and love and privilege. And it was beyond me. It was bigger than me. And I just realized, you know what? You can do it differently. You don't have to teach the parts of this that you felt were imposed on you, that you were pressured by. You don't have to do it that way. And so um, I, um, I, uh, I surrendered to it and I started working for the Balancing Trust. And then how the book came about, and this will be a quick part, is 
Um, ever people, I started becoming very vocal within um, different diabetes um, symposiums and different um, uh, lectures and stuff. And I started talking about what I went through because you know when we're dancing, you don't want to tell anybody what you're going through. God forbid people judge you or they take part away. And um, I started talking about it. Everybody kept saying, "Oh, you should really tell your story." And I'm thinking. Oh, people have it much worse than me. I didn't have it that bad. And then my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And I watched her go through very similar dynamics emotionally and, and trouble with doctors and finding the right way to eat. And that's when it hit me. I said, you know, it's not a diabetic story. It's kind of a, the human story that we all have challenges and we all have a body. And how are we all going to deal with the challenges when we have a physical obstacle? So that's when I wrote the book. It, yeah, it, the human aspect is, and that's, I mean, I feel like I'm just going to keep reflecting back to just conversations we've had over the last couple of years, but it's important to share that stuff. I'm, I'm so grateful you wrote the book on a personal level because I remember, um, I, you know, in reading it, I, I read it when I was recovering from my hip surgery. And for me, I mean, nothing nearly, I mean, that that's not my whole life affected in the same way, but I feel like there's something for everyone and how we can share our stories of struggle. And especially when we are um, in a profession where, like you said, we're all trying to just always be the best all the time for, you know, for ourselves, for the people in the front of the room, for all those things, it's, it's really difficult to feel, um, to work so hard and then to have moments where you feel so much less than. And, and I was definitely going through a period of time, um, where I felt very much plugged into what you mentioned of, um, not reaching my full potential and, and looking at a different kind of future. Um, and that is, I'm getting emotional. (laughs) That's very hard to do as, as dancers, you know, you're, um, from yourself, you have these expectations and then from, wanting to please these people at the front of the room too. And to want, you know, we always want to show them like, no, I'm capable of this. I'm capable of this. And then you finally have something happen physically where you're different now (laughs) and it's never going to be how it was. And it's, it's funny. I, your book was very helpful to me in that way. (laughs) So thank you. Um, Really helped me find some peace with that. And it helped me really find love in the work more um, I think I, before my surgery, I was a very performance-driven dancer, and I still enjoy performing, but I, it, it is different for me now. Um, my body's a little different, so I work differently, and I'm not, I don't feel as free as I did, but I've, I've, I found a way to fall in love with just being in the studio, just having the teachers that really bring something out of you, and spending that time of, like, just really diving deeper into all this stuff. Like, I it's also really rewarding too. So yeah, I think it's, I think it can be, it's important to share stories like yours because it's important for us to find, you know, joy in what we can because as dancers, our careers are short and they're also very um, susceptible to that kind of change in many ways. Well, I, I always feel like most of our life is in the studio. You know, the moments on stage is, are, are not, not the biggest part of, of our life. So, you know, Stanley Williams actually is one of the most influential teachers that way is that the class really was like a meditation and it was just 
you know, discovering, you know, just what can happen through the moment. And we were all just kind of riding this wave of this kind of like um, meditative focus. And I, I found such pleasure in that also. I think, I think um, you touched on a couple of things there in that um, we, we fall in love with dance at such early ages. We are so privileged. You know, most people will go to college. They don't know what they want to do. We discovered at such early ages, not just what we think we want to do. We discover it's almost like we tap into a part of ourselves that we're, we're going to grow into. I think the stage, I feel like the stage showed me who I was going to become as a person that I wasn't even yet. It's almost like it's a, a higher part of yourself, but it, it also incorporates all of who you are. But I don't know that anything else touches it. I think we touch something so um, um, profound about ourselves and life and, and the, our essence, the, the, the um, magnitude of what a soul can incorporate and the, just, just the human emotions, but, but in love and expression. And to have that experience at such an early age, a young age, and then to have that not develop to, to where we, we want it to go, or even if it did, the letting go of it, it's like a death. It's, it's a death of a part of who we are and in a part of like, you know, how is life without that? So I, I think, you know, it sounds like you've gone that through that too. But for me, even though I stayed dancing with the diabetes, it was the, it was in learning, like I said, to deal with that part of myself that wanted those experiences all the time um, and, and wasn't going to have them when I was not doing great with my body. Um, it, it, it was, it was a death of a part of myself and it was an acceptance of, but this other part is still better than not having it at all. And then, and then going into a teacher for me was the same, a similar thing. It's a, it's a death of the dancer, but it's an acceptance of another part of yourself. And it's also, it, it's the unknown. How will I like it? I don't know until I get there. I don't know until I do it. We don't, we just don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, I mean, thank goodness that you went into teaching because I have met so many people that love you so much as a teacher. I can't even tell you everyone, everyone that I have talked to that has had you, it's just like glows when talking about you. I think you really bring something. Um, well, you, you know what I will say, not to toot my own horn, but what I will say is, first of all, I, I will never forget what it was like to be a dancer. I've seen many teachers forget what it's like and look at dancers other and they're here and, and you're on the other side as a teacher now and kind of judging, you know, why are they, why are they lazy? Why are they this? I won't forget what it was like. I remember it was like not to have warm muscles or not to be on your leg or to be feeling shaky or not to have slept so well. So I think I have, um, I go into it with a lot of reverence or even there willing to, to work as hard. And then I think because I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't had diabetes, but I had to think a lot because when my body wasn't getting warm or something like I had to almost be the director of my body like 
toe goes here and this is like, I was, I had to, I, it didn't just happen. I had to work at it. So I had to teach myself. So I feel like I know how to explain things. So if I see it not working in a dancer, I'm like, yeah, I know how to explain that. Like I know what to do for that and I can tell you what to do. So I think it, it helped me articulate um, how to find the right muscles to hold yourself up because I had to teach myself how to do it. And, um, and, and then I, and then I just think that, um, you know, I don't think I'm, I don't feel Pollyanna in it in that, you know, oh, this is all so, you know, everything's wonderful at the battle. I, I think, I think ultimately I'm interested in, in people more than anything. Sometimes I just want to sit down and talk to a student instead of teaching a tondu. <laughs> that's the part of you that wanted to be the psychologist. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think that's a plus and a negative. The negative is it's less like, I'm not that invested in what happens. I mean, but there's a plus in there too. I'm just like, you don't have to get the career. Like I love, I love you as a person, whether you are su successful in that way or not. I just want it cause you want it. So I think there's a plus in that, but the negative on it is maybe I don't push people that hard. You know what I mean? I'm like, Oh, you're tired. It's okay. <laughs> you know. Sometimes I think I, I don't push enough, but, but, I, but if somebody wants it, I will. If somebody wants it, then, then I do, then I do. But um, but I, I think that it's the human being that I'm most interested. I think that we've chosen this profession as part of our expression, but we're deeper than that. You know, each each one of us. I I didn't like the part of ballet where I felt judged by my tondu, how good my tondu was. The value of my soul was judged by my tondu or how high I lifted my leg or how many turns I did. I didn't like that that really bothered me. I don't like to judge people by that. You know, you don't have a great, okay, that just happened. You happen to not have great arches. That's not your fault. It doesn't devalue who you are as a human being, you know? So I feel like that does influence the way that I work in a studio. It's more like, okay, let's see how we can work with this. How can we help you not you're inherently less than because you don't have something, you know what I mean? And also because I had so much shame, I had to work. I did a lot of intense psychological work on myself and metaphysical work because I had so much blame on my soul for having a disease. I felt so less than and other than that, that somehow I was being, not that I was being punished, but that there was inherently something inadequate about me. That's why I was getting sick. And I, I felt it on a, on a deep spiritual level as well as a physical level. And I had to do a lot of work on that. So I can honestly say at this point in my life, and this is 30, over 30 years later, I can look at my diabetes and think, you know, it happened. It wasn't my fault. I didn't bring it on. And so it, that took a long time to work on. But I think that that influences how I, how I teach or who I am as a person also and how I look at other people. I feel like sometimes we're judged for being less than because we're having an issue. I think I look at people with issues as very sensitive souls. Something happened to them for them to have that reaction. And we need to say, are you okay? Yeah. Not say, what's wrong with you? Why can't you just function like everybody? Like, let's, let's find out why you're having a problem. Not that you have to air every little thing, but there's usually a re there's usually a reason why somebody's upset or somebody's having an issue. It doesn't mean that they're less than. Or and, yeah. and as artists, you know, this is one thing I had a problem with also. 
we're expected to be these incredibly emotionally vulnerable artists. And yet, you know, there's no space for us to have an actual problem. You know what I mean? We're supposed to be strong athletes. And yet we're, you know, emotional vulnerability comes with sensitive souls. It just happens. So I feel like um, it's, I, I'd like to be able to open up a conversation with my students and let them feel safe if they need to talk about something. That's part of what makes them who they are. Yeah, no, I, I feel I feel the same way. And it's and <laughs> I know you said I don't I wonder if I don't push them enough. I, I think it's in you're a wonderful balance <laughs> to what a lot of your students will experience out in the world of ballet because it's it's something that um yeah, I, I feel very strongly about that we need to address the mental health aspect of the field is lacking um, in a lot of ways. And as you said, why are, how are we asked to be, to expose ourselves and to put ourselves out there in such a, such a huge way for so many people. And yet you're not supposed to actually really feel or have the space to deal with your stuff if you are feeling it. And I had a, um, I had a student, it, that was, I just choreographed for the professional division students and, um, one of them, you know, having gotten to know them throughout the year, I could tell something was up one day and apparently they were also not feeling well, but I could tell something else was going on too. And as soon as rehearsal was over, they just started, like darted out of the building. <laughs> I actually found myself chasing them down the hallway, yelling after them to stop. And when I finally got them, it's like, tell me what's going on. And you know what, just something's off, I can tell. And it was instantly just tears, <laughs> just like the, the gates open and, and tons of apologizing. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's, it's, you know, this and this. It's like, it's okay. Just talk to me. You know, I can, I can tell something's wrong. And it's, you can just see that it's such a, it's really drilled into us to internalize um, because it is like, you know, it's uh, the emotional stuff, the physical stuff, the being less than is all, um, it's all tied into the feeling of you're not cut out for this. If you can't deal with your stuff, no matter what it is, like you're not cut out to be in the room, which is ridiculous. We're, we're people. We have, we all have stuff, you know, <laughs> some of us have a lot of stuff. And I, I'd like to see, you know, us being supported in being emotional beings, just learning the, you know, a safe place to be able to express ourselves. You know, you don't have to do it in the studio, but it's important to address it, you know, to find, to find a place in your life, a friend to talk to you. If you, if you have the money, get a, get a good therapist or, you know, go get, have a good cry. It's, it's okay. I think it's part of just life and, and cultures um, and the way that we're brought up to think that if you have an emotional issue, it's like even the way women sometimes are seen, oh, she's got her period or whatever. It's just, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, but maybe that's a time to, that I get more in touch with what I'm feeling. Maybe the feelings are already there and that just showed me, oh, I'm not addressing something that I need to look at. You know, I feel like, I feel like emotions, emotions need to be understood in a different way. I think that, that fear, you know, what if, what if you have a feeling, don't go down that block. What if that saved your life? 
You know, if you push that stuff away, then you lose your intuition. I think anger, I think anger gets a really bad rap. Anger can protect yourself when you're in a, when you're in a situation that's not respecting your, you know, you're not being respected or even being abused. You need your anger. You need to be able to say, don't do that to me. So I just, you know, I'd like to see different conversations, you know, also in the ballet world, if we can just support these, uh, you know, dancers and you're not less than because you're having an emotional response. You know, you're not less than we are human beings. This is part of the human dynamic. We just need to learn tools to handle ourselves. What I, what I like to say is that what I had to learn for myself with my diabetes and, and this just dawned on me one day. I was like, you know what? If there was a baby crying, would I go and yell at it? No, I'd pick it up and I'd rock it and I'd let it cry. And I'd rock it until it stopped crying. I wouldn't slap it around until it stopped crying. It's only going to cry harder. Right? So yeah. I, I feel like we need to learn to treat our own hearts that way. We, we're, it's easy to do for somebody else, but when it comes to ourselves, it's not easy. I think we need to learn how to hold ourselves and let ourselves have our feelings and, and hold them and have them and hold them and have them until they know that we're actually here for ourselves. You know, I think that the more we can be there for ourselves, the more we can, we get, we do get support from other people and um, we can ask for support. The more we learn how to actually be there for who we are. That's just bound to do for myself that I think, um, you know, help, help me. And, and of course I feel like I, I, I always had at least one person. I mean, I had my sister, I always had somebody to turn to, to be able to talk to. I think talking is really important that just that one person that you feel like you don't have to hide who you are, you know, and that they're still going to love you. I think that's very important. You know, you have done a lot for the dance world so far for, you know, creating a safe space for dancers and, um, and it's appreciated. Like, I, I mean, I appreciate you so much on a personal level. You've been amazing. You've been such a wonderful mentor to me. Um, and I know that again, the people that have experienced you feel the same way as a teacher, as a coach. I know some of the ballet Tucson dancers that have worked with you on the Balanchine Ballets, they have two this year. I didn't realize those were the first two that you staged, so that's amazing. Yeah, that's true. I just realized that too. Yeah, Baroque and Serenade. It's awesome. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, I would, I really want to encourage everyone to buy your book and read it, The Sugarless Plum. It's absolutely amazing. There's so much more in there than we could ever possibly get to here. Um, and you've also written a children's book. Do you want to? I wrote a children's book, yeah. It's called mm -hmm. Ballerina Dreams. And that's just about a little girl who gets diagnosed and how she doesn't quit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How she learns to, to deal with what happened to her and keep going. Yeah. It's amazing. So that's another wonderful resource for people. And we always have, um, really wonderful conversations about, you know, this field we both love a lot. Um, but we also love it with critical eye, I think in the way that we want to, we want to see it, you know, grow into, you know, into the future. Uh, in a more open-minded way, I think. So um, I know something I'm planning that I would love is, you know, for you to come on again <laughs> several times. I think we're going to... I would love it to just continue the conversation. Yeah, Absolutely. So, so I think people can definitely stay tuned for <laughs> more focus. You know, we want I wanted to have this conversation with you to kind of share more about your background for people that aren't as experienced with your life. But um, going forward, you know, there's so many 
more specific things for you and I to get into, which I'm really excited about. And I know you have also some big project in, in the works that will reveal as we go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So um, just, I'm just so grateful for, for you and thank you for talking with us. And um, thank you so much. I just adore you and love everything that you're doing and, you know, just love the opportunity to get to share. And um, I think it's important. I think it's important that we be as authentic as we can um, in, in both the challenges and the struggles, as well as the love, you know, it can, it can coexist. So thank you everyone for tuning in. Thank you, Zephora, for being here. And like I said, we'll, we'll keep talking about these things that need to be talked about and uh, hope you'll join us again for that. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, again, stay tuned on our website, on our Instagram. You can follow for new episodes coming up. And uh, we're at Beyond the Bar podcast on Instagram. So thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm your host, Margaret Mullen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bar. This episode was produced and edited by Serena Fishman Jimenez. Our theme music is by William Lin Yi. You can catch up on past episodes at margaretmullen.com slash podcast or by searching for Beyond the Bar on Apple Podcasts. If you enjoy the show, you can follow us on Instagram at Beyond the Bar Podcast and consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts to help the show grow. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, I'm your host, Margaret Mullen.